Welcome to Off the Page. I'm your fellow bibliophile and host, Crystal Sarakis. We've got a really fun interview today. R.J. Savage is a writer in Ithaca, New York. Her second book is called A Century of Swindles, Ponzi Schemes, Con Men, and Fraudsters. Now, if you're a fan of true crime, but the kind without all the murder death kill, then I think you're going to love this book. It takes a deep dive into seven infamous schemes that took place between 1850 and 1950. There's intrigue, deception, sensationalism, and um, a kind of chutzpah that is mind-boggling. Rayleigh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, Crystal, it is totally my pleasure. Gee whiz. So tell us about this really, really interesting book that you've written. Um, so the book in question is A Century of Swindles, Ponzi Schemes, Con Men, and Fraudsters by me, Rayleigh Jane Savage. Um, and this is a roundup of seven different cons that were at work in America between 1850 and 1950. Um, and I chose that time period very specifically because if nothing else, I didn't want to deal with the internet um, because the digital age uh, opened a lot of doors for different kinds of cons. And those cons are, you know, still sort of playing out today. And I am not rich enough nor smart enough to deal with lawyers. So I stuck to people who were long dead, but the echoes of their actions are definitely still ringing today. So I chose those seven stories intentionally. Sometimes dead people are just easier to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into talking about some of these specific schemes, you mentioned that you wrote this book in 2020 when everything was locked down and everything was closed. I'm, I'm curious, what was the research process like when most of those usual places like libraries and other places were closed? Um, that's a great question, Crystal. And I did hew very intentionally to newspapers um, because, and I didn't realize this until I had after, until I had started researching a story that I ended up abandoning because all of the information was coming from the schemer himself, autobiographies and interviews and whatnot. And after reading for a while, I realized, wait a second, we can't trust this person. So um, that meant that I was going to look at information that was much more readily and widely available in that moment, contemporaneous accounts that anyone would have had access to. Um, so that meant newspapers, which were admittedly sensationalized in the day, but you could still glean actual information. And accessing those newspapers, I would argue, would have been impossible before the internet era, because I was able to tap into you know, specific archives, whether through an online platform or a library's archives, I actually had access to way more stuff than I had ever imagined. Um, and 
being in lockdown and diving into the research of a different time, I was very happy to follow any and all threads that I could get my hands on from within the safety of my home because I I was worried during lockdown. To this day, I exercise maybe extreme restraint. Um, I'm talking to you from my home, Crystal. Um, but the research was absolutely facilitated by digital access. Um, so big shout out. Uh, one wrinkle that I had not anticipated when I started this research though, was that so many of these newspapers that I was looking at are of course scans of an actual physical piece of ephemera. And as a result, you know, they maybe haven't been quote unquote translated and were really hard to read even. So I had to go through and do things like messing with the contrast, asking my Photoshop friends to actually help me literally discern what I was looking at. Um, so even though I was doing my research via the internet, um, which I don't know, maybe that feels less, uh, I don't know, uh, esteemed somehow. Uh, yeah, yuck. But I, I did it through the internet, but it was not without its challenges. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Newspapers.com is one of my favorite subscriptions. The rabbit holes that you can go down are endless and fascinating. Absolutely. I, um, I mean, you're speaking my language, but that I found to be at once inspiring and also infuriating because you have to pretty quickly keep yourself on the correct track because it is just a warren of fascinating stories that beg to be told. You write about seven different schemes and the people who are at the center of them. How did you lock in on those particular stories over others? Um, I really wanted to highlight stories that hadn't gotten a lot of play before. Um, and these are scams and schemes many of which I actually discovered through reading about other scams and schemes, ones that did not make it into the book because they've already had their day in court, as it were. Um, and the ones that ultimately made the cut, I thought were at, what, at once representative of what was possible in that moment for a scammer, but also was engaging and a lively story, and to put it kind of bluntly, not icky. There's a lot of, you know, scamming and conning brings with it violence a lot of the times. And I, um, I was not that interested in hanging out and ruminating on uh, icky stuff, which isn't to say that the psychological malice that was going on isn't icky because absolutely it is you know the psychological stuff is what is so amazing and fascinating to me if we look at the story of betty bigley she started her scheming at a really young age and i wondered this can't just be something that that happens out of opportunity it seems like a a mindset as well and these are really intelligent people to be able to pull off these schemes so tell us a little bit about betty bigley 
Um, so the chapter you're referring to is called The Three Trials of Betty Bigley, um, because she ends up in court three times, starting, as you said, Crystal, at a very young age, you know, 14 in rural Canada, she is taken to court for, let's see, she had gone to a barber in a set of man's clothes and had him cut her hair. And then she tried to ask him for a fake mustache. And then she tried to sell him a pocket watch. Um, and so he got a little concerned, sent her home to her parents. And she, it came out that she had already been sort of making her mark locally by very cleverly writing notes, promissory notes, maybe um, the equivalent of like a check today, um, but writing them on behalf of people who had recently died or maybe didn't exist at all. Um, and I, I agree with you, Crystal, that that does seem to present itself out of nowhere, because from what I could discern, no one else in her family had these um, predilections for, for schemes and for chicanery. So she was unique in that sense. Um, she then goes on to peddle herself as an heiress to a non-existent estate, but by printing the cards, she had these little calling cards that said, you know, heiress to $15,000 and had her picture on it. Those cards alone became like currency. So she was then able to peddle those as leverage to various actual legitimate respectable places in America, who then it wasn't until she was long gone that they realized there was no account to actually draw from for these promissory notes wrapped up in this uh, scheming is, um, I would argue, a mania that transcends opportunity because Betty Bigley, who went by other names, ultimately, Cassie Chadwick being one, she ends up creating opportunities everywhere she goes. And um, I have been trying to think about my, my schemers and the different places, different drives they were working with. And I ultimately settled on, on three words and it was mania, malice, and momentum. And I would classify Betty Bigley um, in the mania category because she, couldn't help herself, it seemed. And that um, undeniable drive to get one over meshed with her well-reported um, love of shiny things. So those things I think crashed into each other in such a way that she could not help but make marks wherever she went. I do not classify all of my cons in the mania category, but I do think that Betty Bigley, Cassie Chadwick was driven by something that I wasn't gonna be able to find in a newspaper. 
I think it was interesting with her story that when she became Cassie Chadwick, she married into Cleveland's Millionaire Row. She had found this place and grudging acceptance, but she wanted more and more and more. And, and to be fair, she actually gave a lot of stuff away and she was really generous with the money she was stealing. That I mean, I agree. It's that is wrapped up in, in the mania. Um a diagnosis that I have made. I hesitate to use that word because I am not into armchair psychology. I don't think it's safe. However, she clearly couldn't help herself. And I think wrapped up in that is um, all of these cons there are wrapped up in their own egos. That is just part and parcel for what is happening. And Betty, Cassie, could never extricate her ego with her magpie tendencies and those on top of wanting to outsmart anyone in her orbit makes her um, a fascinating character and one that I do look at with kinder eyes than some of my others because she, yeah, just as you mentioned, like she used her ill-gotten funds to buy toys for every orphan in Cleveland one Christmas. It's hard to begrudge someone um, that kind of manic generosity, except when it comes out that it's on someone else's uh, dime. <laughs> But she actually ruined banks. She didn't just take down individuals. She also took down entire banks. Indeed. her um, The destruction in her wake was palpable and could have been way worse were it not for um, a couple of dudes really demanding that they either get their money's worth or get their money back. And I, I guess that... I do want to just draw attention to that, which is it's really hard to call out a scammer um, if you have been fleeced, if that makes any sense. It's um, <laughs> to go back to my psychological armchair, it's difficult to unbelieve something when you have put your faith and your hope and your literal money into something that seems to be just the ticket and then it's not, that is um, devastating. It, it shakes your worldview utterly. And I have found in, in my research that it's essentially the people who could afford to actually call the schemers out who ultimately were their downfall. Um, because like everyday folks getting conned and swindled was not news. It was just teachable moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, the idea that you can't con an honest man um, is incorrect, I think. It, that doesn't hold water. 
you know, one of the many things that really stood out while reading this book is the amount of money that we're talking about in these schemes. Um, it's not just a couple hundred dollars sure. in the late 1800s. This is hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. Now, I didn't do the calculation as to what that would be in today's dollars, but it would probably be a lot. Indeed. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up, Crystal, because in the final chapter in the book, which is about the unclaimed estate of Sir Francis Drake, um, uh, first of all, that chapter was bananas. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God, that was a hell of a chapter. Can I stop before we get into talking about that? I love how each chapter starts out with its cast of characters. You give us the time, the place, the take, and the players for each one. Mm-hmm. And this chapter on, on Drake, the time period of 1595 to 2003, I <laughs> roared when I read that because I just I knew this is going to be so much fun. The Place, Plymouth, England, Berkeley, California, London, Bloomington, Illinois, Des Moines, Sioux City, Iowa, Leavenworth, Kansas. The Take, $1.3 million, free drinks, first-class fares to from England, the promise of $25 billion, the city of Plymouth, England, and all the gold in the Bank of England. That's a lot. Oh, my goodness, right? I mean, when these people thought that they were awaiting literal boatloads, like galleons weighing down the ships coming steaming across the Atlantic. Um, I, I had to kind of step back. I had to do that a lot of times in this chapter because the credulity of the marks was flipping mind blowing. And um, part of that Part of what made it so crazy for me to try to keep up with this story was I, like you, Crystal, was trying to do the math. I spent, I mean, days trying to find various calculators and algorithms that would translate 1595 currency into 1850s currency into 2020 currency. And at a certain point, I realized not only is this making me cuckoo crazy, it's not the point, actually. And to engage with a scammer to ask, but how much, means that you've already lost, I think, um, because it's giving credence to what is fundamentally a lie. Asking how much fake money you're gonna get um, doesn't, (laughs) asking how much fake money you're gonna get out of a scheme um, means that you're already part of the scheme. It also struck me that the amount of, I guess in hindsight, naive trust, if, if we go back to Betty Bigley, she created her own letterhead from a law firm that stated that she was the heiress to this fortune. Mm -hmm. And she was able to go out and hand these letters out. And people Mm -hmm. were like, okay. And what she did with the Carnegie scam, I mean, Andrew Carnegie himself was at her last trial and he seemed kind of impressed by her. Indeed. He, um, I think he was impressed and like maybe even 
respected what um, gall she had because she truly, um, so the Andrew Carnegie component of Betty Bigley, I think is really interesting because in the same vein as the promissory notes that she had created herself, she alluded to the existence of a promissory note. Um, so one reason I think she was probably so willing to do that is because um, these notes and these calling cards that I'm making reference to were standard in that era. Someone of a certain disposition um, could walk into a shop and say, oh, I'll take this one, this one, this one. Here's my card. See you later. And that worked. Um, Betty Cassie did that and did it really well, like had turned it into an art form such that when she invoked Carnegie's name, she didn't actually even need the calling card anymore because she had made it such a well-established fact that her promissory note was as good as gold. And so then she took it one step further and sort of salted these rumors around that she had of, of the existence of a promissory note of um, she tried to put these sort of whispered intimations into well-placed ears on Millionaire's Row that her credit was backed up by, you know, a certain famously chased Ironmaster. Yeah, who could that be? And I, I remain impressed by her ability to spin the suggestion of the lie, right? Because she wasn't coming out and saying, well, Papa Andy would do X, Y, Z. She just said, oh, no, 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 you know, I'm, let's not be gauche, um, but trust me, I'm good for it because I come from deep pockets. And then for Carnegie to actually show up to her trial at the end and basically say, wow, if nothing else, this woman has proven that my credit can take me anywhere in the world. I mean, that's just cuckoo. And I like good for her, basically. <laughs> Carnegie ultimately, you know, became very generous and philanthropic. So I'd like to think that there were various corners turned. Um, but who's to say? Maybe Cassie Chadwick, Betty Bigley's final trial was part of that. Yeah, I, I did not expect that chapter to end that way. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean... Um, to put it in 2020, 2022 language, I, I think that Carnegie probably was saying game recognizes game. I have this headcanon now that, you know, if she had been a man, he might have hired her because, you know, she was so good at the deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that is. She was brash and um, and creative and aggressive and I think it was incredibly inspired of her to do what she did in the way that she did, because 
true, she wasn't a man, so she couldn't claim, you know, X, Y, Z in that cultural landscape, but she could, by virtue of being a woman, appeal to the notion of legacy and a daughter. Um, and I, I just think that was so clever and how, how unfortunate that that cleverness was channeled into these veins that ended up being so destructive. Yeah, if only she were a man. <laughs> Let's talk about Francis Drake with the hysterical setup that you've given us. I read that and I thought I have no idea where this is going to go. Um, we start on the coast of California and somebody finds a scrap of metal. Just driving along the California coast one day in 1936, um, a, a motorist car breaks down. And as he's trying to mess with the flat tire, he happens upon this tiny piece of strange rusty metal that happens to fit a hole in his car perfectly. So he shoves it into the bottom of his vehicle, doesn't think much about it. Until a while later, he's sort of once again deconstructing his vehicle and this plate comes out and he sees that it's, it's not just junk, it's you know junk with character. There's something inscribed. He talks to his friends, his friends say, oh, here, I know this guy that you need to talk to. So ultimately, this weird piece of junk metal ends up in the hands of Professor Herbert Eugene Bolton, who is in California and is well known as the sort of preeminent scholar and number one fanboy of Sir Francis Drake. When this weird piece of junk metal gets into Bolton's hands, he kind of can't believe what is happening because when he really looks at it, cleans it up and gives it a thorough once over, it appears to be a plate of brass that Sir Francis Drake had inscribed when he touched on the California coast in 1579. So, this weird piece of metal had spent 350 years hanging out on the California coast like all of us would like to do and then happened to get into the hands of one of the only people who would be able to um, legitimize and sort of uh, authenticate this plate. Bolton Bolton's legacy um, and his lifelong enthusiasm are vindicated. And this plate of brass becomes a central, like a tent pole in California history. Um, as soon as it's discovered in 36, I think they make the announcement in the early 40s, and then it holds this incredibly privileged place in the historical canon for ever, basically. And I wanted to um, start my chapter with this plate of brass, because I do think it helps pin in time where um, attitudes about Sir Francis Drake were as this 
scam was taking hold in America. Um, to be very clear though, this plate was found many years, like at least 80 years after the Drake estate scam had actually started rolling. And for a, I'm gonna attempt to give a super quick summary of what this, is, what this scam was. Um, essentially, in the 1840s and 50s, America experiences this surge of interest in genealogy and um, lawsuits. And those two things combined into um, the notion that there were things, i.e. money, due to folks that were just laying in wait. And all they had to do was ask for them because they were entitled to it. Um, someone very cleverly linked those attitudes with a skepticism over the, uh, the will of long dead Sir Francis Drake. Sir Francis Drake dies in 1597 and dies childless and leaves everything to his brother. And then as was custom at the time, the estate was to travel down according to sons and brothers, you know, via a male line. What happens though, is that ultimately it is Sir Francis Drake's great nephew, also named Francis Drake. There are, there are a lot of Francis Drakes. Um, the great nephew dies without sons, so amends the will such that everything goes to his daughters rather than this other male line. One of the, one of the people, one of the Drakes, also named Francis, this other Francis Drake, who according, like if the will had gone down according to the prescribed line, this Francis would have received at least a, a portion of the original Drake estate but because it had ended up going to his cousins, basically, this Francis Drake ends up in America. With a um, sort of enervated enthusiasm for genealogy in the 1850s and this newfound ownership of, um, a you know, being litigious, they, crashed into each other and someone married that Sir Francis Drake who happened to land in America with the idea that there was um, money and inheritance that had been unfairly taken from him. And then what the people, what the progenitors of this Drake estate scam in America were doing were soliciting anyone with any possible information about the Drake line to join into a collective effort to right the wrong of not receiving a payout from the Sir Francis Drake estate. And uh, to put this in context, the Sir Francis Drake estate 
is um, sort of legendary and notorious in these people's minds because Sir Francis Drake um, is Queen Elizabeth's like number one pirate and the scourge of the high seas and returns to England in 1581 with a literal belly full of galleons and booty. And um, so much so that she actually rose out, well, someone rose her out into the harbor and she knights him on the spot, like way to go. And that, that imagined horde, I mean, it was an actual horde, but the, the tenor it had taken in these people's minds you know, I imagine them imagining like Scrooge McDuck, you know, diving board into the swimming pool full of doubloons. Um, I think it was hard for them to detach that fantasy from the idea that they had been slighted. And so those two things combined into a fervor. Um, it was this idea that people, regardless of their station, their worth, um, their, their situation were due a windfall. Um, and that was very powerful and appealed to a lot of people. So in the 1870s, there are some architects of this play who know to appeal to a you know an average person's thirst for money for nothing with um a confirmation that they were special and part of something and so in the 1870s they started soliciting basically personal information from scores of people named drake in america and with all of this family history, they could claim to construct a legitimate line to what they thought these Drakes were due. And this scam took on um, a momentum of its own such that the scheme outlasted uh, a few sort of generations of schemers. And um, I was really taken <laughs> uh, by the idea that th the cons just had to ride it. Um, they, they were on this, this um, sort of steam engine that they had fueled, but then had a harder time directing because it was fueled by unbridled enthusiasm and that put them in in an interesting and potentially tricky spot um and it's not until the the ultimate the final schemer oscar hartzell talk top dog om hartzell he does the smart thing and just leaves america and claims to be fighting for the Drake folks in London for about 10 years. Um, and it's 
it's not until he comes back stateside that people realize that maybe he wasn't working as hard as he claimed to. And I, I want to say once more for the people in the back, there was no estate to claim. There was nothing waiting. There was nothing that hadn't already been paid out the way it was supposed to. So there was, um, there was this dangerous bent of, of rewriting history in a way that would conform to what their perceived narrative should have been. Something that jumped out at me is that we talk today about how people have this sense of entitlement, and that also seemed to be the driving force behind this Drake scheme. So this isn't a new thing. You know, it's not some new problem that we have. People like to blame entitlement on, I, I don't know, video games, the internet, lack of prayer in schools, whatever. Oh, definitely all of those. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, I, I don't know what the reasons are, but you see this echoed here in these stories. There was almost this mob-like enthusiastic desperation. Yes. yes. I, I guess it was so complicated emotionally, I imagine, for everyone involved. Absolutely. Yeah, because they, the the Marks, the Drakers, which is how I refer to them in the chapter, that's how they refer to themselves. Um, the Drakers, it seemed to me, were fueled by, yes, desperation, but married with that was hope and, um, and entitlement. And those things combined together such that it reshaped their worldview in that they had a different understanding of who they were in the broader landscape. They were part of something. And um, I, I don't begrudge them that. I think that is a very human drive to be a part of something, to be in a community, um, to feel these common bonds that sort of inherently imply specialness. And so I, the Drakers were suckers and that is really hard to swallow, I think. I, I found it um, difficult because I do, I felt for these people because they were just hoping. And so I would categorize the Draker marks um, as having hope, entitlement, and desperation. But I would categorize the cons as having hope, entitlement, and luck. So the only difference between the <laughs> schemers and the suckers was that the schemers kind of took advantage of the moment, whereas the suckers kept waiting for it. So we're almost out of time, but there is one more thing that I wanted to talk about. A lot of these schemes played out in newspapers wherein they went to court, reporters were there reporting every day. And a lot of these schemers in turn said, don't believe the press. You can't believe what you read in the paper. 
And we see echoes of that happening right now in, you know, today. So how integral was the press in unraveling these schemes? And why, why was the public so fascinated with these stories that they'd reason, read in these newspapers? Oh. Well, indeed, they're sensational. Um, they're, they're still fascinating. And to see them play out in real time, I can imagine was thrilling and a little scary. Um, so that, that right there, that would grab anyone's attention. Um, the newspapers, um, which is what I would call the media of the day, were... Um, everywhere. Reporters were everywhere. And they were um, writing everything down. They were talking to everyone. And because they were everywhere, it meant that there was a lot of information accessible, but there was also a lot of opinions, right? Um, because I think as a human, we can't help but imbue a little bit of ourselves into what we put forth into the world. So it is true that there is a, an element of subjectivity in each of these reports, but that's why it's so great that you can refer to multiple newspapers because again, they were all over the place. Um, and this is where everyone got their information. So there was no lack of demand. And if you sort of triangulate between three different reporters account of an event, you can glean the actual facts. You can find the quote that's the same across all, all um, articles and things like that. Um, thank you very much for asking this question, Crystal, because I chose newspapers very specifically. So I have written about people long dead, you know, these schemes are not what we're dealing with right now, but that doesn't mean there aren't echoes of what has already gone down. And just as you said, we are in a strange moment that seems to have um, like truth on trial. Um, and a large part of that is just like social media and the um, just the amount of information that is out there, right? Um, even though it, I mean, in the 1880s, they weren't checking Facebook quite as often as I am, but there were a lot of newspapers and it was the most up to, up to the minute um, access to information. And Thinking through this in an in our current age of both misinformation and disinformation, it does fall to us as readers, as Americans, as you know, journalists, to be canny and to actually dig a little when something feels not right. The very first and best defense, I think against misinformation is a gut check. Um, if it doesn't pass it, then it's probably not true, right? If it seems too good to be true, then it is. Looking across the board at the newspaper, contemporaneous newspaper accounts, one, 
i.e. me, I am able to ferret out what happened. And it was really interesting and I think incredibly um, instructive to have to do that because it did force me to look at one event and then look at how that event played out in different, uh, you know, media, um, different sites. It reminds me of like Rashomon. So you've got one story, but it's what happens is different according to who remembers it and who's telling it. But that's not to say that there aren't some truths at the heart of it. And I, um, I really enjoyed finding those truths and it, it gave me hope um, and made me a little frustrated because we all have to be doing that all the time right now. And that is, um, that's onerous, right? It's, it's hard to, it's exhausting to feel like you need to be um, ingesting everything with a healthy dose of skepticism. That's, um, that's hard for an individual, I think. Um, but this is where we are and all the more reason to do the research, do your reading, and listen to your gut. Rayleigh, thanks so much for being here. I loved it. Crystal, this was such a pleasure. I, I mean, who knew this was a lifelong goal until it actually happened? Bucket list. Check. R.J. Savage is the author of A Century of Swindles, Ponzi Schemes, Con Men, and Fraudsters. If you read this book or any of the other books that we've talked about on Off the Page, I want to hear about it. Share your comments on Twitter, just tweet at WSKG, or send an email to offthepage at WSKG.org. I may even read your comments in a future episode. Off the Page is produced by WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope to see you next time when we go Off the Page. 